I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel 15. Returning here for the final time. This is, of course, the third week we've been in this chapter. Two weeks back, we looked at the Lord's command for King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, uh, to completely destroy this enemy tribe, every person, every animal. And I spent the entire sermon looking at that ban on the Amalekites and how we as believers are actually comforted by the vengeance and justice of our holy gods. That was two weeks back. Last week we looked at another possibly confusing detail in this narrative, which is the Lord regretting that he made Saul king. We're told in verse 11, the Lord regretted he made Saul king. Then Samuel says later in the chapter to Saul, the Lord does not regret. And then the chapter ends by saying the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king. We looked at that seeming paradox involving our God and regret. And so I won't be discussing either of those today. Um, the judgment of the Amalekites, or the Lord's regret. If you weren't with us and you're curious, you can find those on our website. Uh, So having addressed those two prickly issues already, I feel like we're finally able to move on to the actual main point of the passage, which is obedience. That's what this is all about. It's about obedience, Or to be specific, Israel's king not obeying the voice of the Lord. That is the main point of this chapter. Now, if you've been really locked in and paid close attention to this series in 1 Samuel, you may have noticed that I completely skipped the last little paragraph at the end of chapter 14. 
If you've got your Bibles open, you can see that final section in chapter 14, verses 47 through 52. And I want to go back there because I think doing so might be a helpful introduction. What we see at the very end of chapter 14 is a summary of King Saul's reign. Now, he's a long way from dying in 1 Samuel. But this is almost like an obituary. It speaks glowingly of King Saul's success in battle. It speaks of his family, those who came before and after him. And it speaks of his army. Dale Ralph Davis calls this short section the judgment of history. Meaning, these are all the things that could be observed of King Saul from the outside. These are all the things that the watching world would have seen and remembered. His family, his army, his success in battle. These are the things that would have been included in his biography. But here's the issue. This short little section seems to be out of place. Almost like the author just cut it and then pasted it here at the end of chapter 14. And then goes on in the next chapter to go into great detail of how King Saul was rejected by the Lord. And I think this this reminds us of something very important. When it comes to our lives, when it comes to who we were and how we lived, real success is not judged by history or by the biographers or even by those attending our funerals. Real success is judged by our God, who is able to read and understand the motives and desires of the human heart. There's a phrase today that's widely spoken, a phrase most all of you have heard, being on the right side of history. You'll see that on TV You'll see it in articles. People are very concerned with being on the right side of history. They want their lives to be remembered that way. What we're reminded of, in the composition of this book even, is that what you and I really need to be concerned with is are we on the right side of the God who reigns over history? I mean, would we rather have the obituaries praising our lives, or would we rather have the Lord God Almighty praising our lives? Now, of course, those two aren't mutually exclusive. You can be a faithful believer and be praised at your funeral. You can be a faithful believer and be praised by your biographers. But the truth is, most of us won't be the subject of biographies. Most of us won't be famous like King Saul. Most of our names will be forgotten a thousand years from now or even a hundred years from now. But here's an encouragement to follow that maybe depressing thought. Simply being faithful is better than being a king that history will remember. Dale Ralph Davis writes something very simple and profound. Everyone can get this. He says, our God, start over, our God isn't looking for winners. 
He's looking for disciples. Our God isn't looking for winners. He's looking for disciples. And here's my proof. You've got this short little section at the end of chapter 14, which gives a positive summary of Saul's life, but most of you probably missed it. You didn't even know that I skipped over it. But what you didn't fail to miss was the lengthy, dramatic narrative that follows of the Lord's rejection of King Saul because he left the path of discipleship. Our God cares most about having obedient disciples, not successful historic kings. So just remember that. Remember in your day-to-day that covenant faithfulness will always trump your vocational achievement. Well, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll read our text. Heavenly Father, as we submit ourselves to you and to your word, would you give your people ears to hear and would we obey? Would we not simply be those who hear your word, but also those who do your word? Lord, we know that sin hardens the heart and makes it callous. But Lord, would, would your spirit and your word work as a surgeon to cut away that scar tissue, that, that callous, um, that callous a tissue so that we might have soft hearts that love you and love your word and are obedient to your commands. So would you give us ears to hear what your spirit has for your saints? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to read all of 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, 
For he has turned from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. 
Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Again, what's the main point of this chapter? It's obedience. Listening to the voice of the Lord and doing exactly what he commands. We see this here from the very beginning. Samuel comes to King Saul and says, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. This is an important reminder. What's he doing here? Samuel is reminding Saul, Hey, you need to listen and obey because God is the one who made you king over his people. Saul, these aren't your people. These are his people. And you didn't make yourself king. God made you king. And you're just a handsome farm boy looking for lost donkeys. And I met you on the road and told you that God had chosen you to be the shepherd of his people. Remember who you are, Saul. You know, in writing this, I was reminded... Of a quote, I think it comes from the Cosby Show. I'm not sure of its origin, but I'm sure most of us have heard it before. You've heard parents jokingly use it. Uh, it goes something like, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of this world. It's something that a parent says to a child. Maybe you've said something like that before, but. Joking aside, this is how the chapter begins. Saul, these are my people. I loved them long before you were born. I'm the one who made you king. And I can just as easily make someone else king in your place. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This should be Saul's first priority. Listen to what God says and do it. This is item one on the job description of the king of Israel. Then comes the command that we talked about previously to devote to destruction the Amalekites and all that they have. In verse 4, Saul quickly responds. He gathers his men, heads to the city of Amalek. We see in verse 6 that he spares the Kenites. Now, I haven't mentioned them yet. Uh, They're neighbors of the Amalekites, but they're neighbors who showed kindness to God's people, and so they're spared. They weren't included in this mission of divine judgment, and Saul, to his credit, doesn't get overzealous and go beyond his command. He allows them to escape. And he focuses solely on the Amalekites. And in verse 7 we read, Saul defeated the Amalekites. But what else do we read? He spared their king. 
a man named Agag, and he spared the best of the livestock. All that was good, he didn't kill, and this is Saul's sin. This is the reason the Lord rejects him. Because he spared the Amalekite king and he spared the best of the animals. Now, why do you spare the king? Well, we aren't told for sure, but Saul had his reasons. I would guess King Agag would serve as a living monument to Saul's victory. He's a walking, talking trophy. Every time Saul saw Agag eating at his table, he'd be reminded that he was the winner and Agag was the loser. Why keep the animals alive? Well, later Saul tells Samuel that it was only so that they could be offered to the Lord as sacrifices. If you think that's what those men were thinking in that moment, I need to warn you not to buy that oceanfront property in Arizona. You will be disappointed. Listen, regardless of their motives, regardless of what they were going to do with the animals, what they were going to do with the king, they failed to carry out a simple order, kill them all. Disobeyed God's voice. And we see the assessment in verse 11. Saul had turned back from following the Lord and has not performed his commandments. Samuel now has to have a very hard conversation He's not excited about this. Having to go to a king who was blind to his sin. And we obviously see that because look in verse 12. We're told that Saul builds a monument for himself. He builds a monument commemorating his great victory over the Amalekites. He he has no idea he's in trouble. And then when Samuel comes to him, he, he sees Samuel, and looks him in his eyes and says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Again, Saul is clueless. He thinks, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. But only two verses back, the Lord says, Saul has turned from following me and has not done what I commanded. There's a grave warning for us here. And it's that it's possible to be, it's it's possible to feel free of guilt and be guilty. It's possible to have no pangs of conscience and be totally at odds with the Lord. I was reminded of a funny quote that my friend Tony Childs tells about his dad, his, his late father, the way it works, someone in Tony's household would wake up in the morning and come out and say, ah, oh, I didn't sleep well last night. And Mr. Miller would look at him and say, well, is your conscience bothering you? What we need to see is that it's possible to sleep like a baby and be in grave sin. It's possible for you to build a monument thinking you've done something great when in reality you've done something bad. Sometimes your conscience doesn't bother you when it should. It can become so seared and so hardened you have no clue you've made a shipwreck of your life. 
You remember Jiminy Cricket's advice? Let your conscience be your guide. This is the fallacy in that advice. Saul's conscience was not bothering him at all. He looked in the eye of this angry, sad, tired old prophet and said, I did what God said. He was blind. He'd fallen prey to the deceitfulness of sin. And this is something that the author of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sadly, that's exactly what happened to King Saul. He fell away from the living God. He had no idea. He'd been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, church, this is what we desperately need. We need each other. We need the communion of the saints to spend time together and fellowship together and encourage one another and speak into each other's lives and call one another out when we're in error. We need to build one another up in the true faith, reminding each other of the words of the Lord so that we might not be deceived ourselves. Just remember, a clear conscience is no guarantee of innocence. We've got to remember what the Lord said. If, if Saul had gone back and checked the records and say, all right, what did he say exactly? He would have known. We need to remember what the Lord has said. So Saul looks Samuel in the eye and says, I did it. I did what God told me to do. And Samuel responds by asking a question. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear. Meaning, you obviously didn't, Saul. Because the sound coming from those plundered animals is accusing you. And so they're going back and forth and Saul busts out the excuses. He says, oh, oh, those, those were saved to be used as sacrifices to the Lord. That's like saying... I cheated on my taxes. So now, pastor, I can give more to the church. I engaged in some shady business, but now I can write a bigger check towards that building project. I was reminded of a story. This is a true story. A guy that I used to be really close with, and we kind of had a sad falling out and are not really close anymore. Um, but he decided he didn't like his car. And so he went and traded it in. And he brought home a beautiful new vehicle. I'm not going to tell you what it was. Someone in here might have one of these vehicles. And so I'm not going to say. I'm just going to say vehicle. Big, beautiful vehicle. He brings it back and he, he couldn't afford it. Um, I'm walking around the garage, looking at it, kicking the tires. I see the sticker in the window. I know my buddy. I know what he makes. And uh, 
so we're we're walking around looking at it. I'm shocked by the sticker in the window, but I'm I'm being polite and I'm complimenting the beauty of this this vehicle. And uh, he shows me the inside and we're, we're sitting in there. He's in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat sitting in his garage. And uh, you know what he said to me? He looked and he said, John, I just can't wait to use this for the Lord. And I thought, what? Are you going to drive to South Jackson and pick up the homeless and take them to a food pantry? You going to deliver meals on wheels in this car? Are you going to volunteer with a youth group and drive kids to summer conference in this car? What are you talking about? You wanted this big, beautiful vehicle, so you bought it, and now you're trying to sound overly pious by saying, oh, I just can't wait to use this to serve the Lord. Well, it didn't get much service. The payment was killing him. So nine months later, he traded it in, lost thousands of dollars, and brought home a less expensive car. But we can do the same thing, can't we? That's what Saul does. I was obedient. Sure, I brought back the king alive, but I killed the rest. Sure, I brought back the best of livestock, but it was only, we weren't going to keep any of them. It was just so they could be used in worship. What does Samuel do? Oh man, he drops a bomb in verse 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What delights God more? The offerings and sacrifices that you give Or is it doing what he says? And you see the answer. It's doing what he says. The next verse, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The fat of rams was one of the best animal sacrifices that could be offered. We're told that God delights more in his people listening to what he says. And this is a major reoccurring thing in the scriptures. You saw it in Psalm 40 that Bill read today. It's in, There are so many. I just chose, I think, four examples. There are so many places I could have gone. In Isaiah 1, we read, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats, When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Then in Jeremiah 6, 
Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. What use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice Roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I could keep going, but you see what all these are saying? If you're not doing what the Lord says, then all your acts of external worship are meaningless. Again, you can write a check But if you aren't following his commandments, it means nothing. You can show up every Sunday. You can recite the Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed. You can sing loudly and give generously and volunteer constantly and bring food for church luncheons and offer beautiful petitions of prayer or prayer meetings. You can do all those things. But if you aren't keeping the Lord's commandments, none of it matters. Earlier this week, I had a friend reach out to me. She was working on some cards that she's making for Holy Week. And she wanted to know the names for each day of the week. She, she already knew Palm Sunday. She knew Monday, Thursday. She knew Good Friday. And of course, uh, Resurrection Day. But she was curious about Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I'm like, well, Presbyterians are historically pretty cold towards the church calendar, so I mean, I don't have a good Presbyterian church calendar to send you. And so I looked at the Roman Catholic church calendar to see what they said, and I looked at the Episcopal Church USA's church calendar, and somehow I wound up on the Greek Orthodox calendar. Their Easter is like a month later. But it was so detailed. It, it blew my mind. There was something almost every day. And then I noticed that the days on the calendar were all different colors. They were color-coded. There would be a block of reds and then a blue and then an orange and then another big block of reds. And I'm like, what does that mean? So I went down to the legend, the key down at the bottom, to learn what these colors meant. And they were for fast days. You, you, you would see the color and you would know what you could and couldn't eat on that day. And I just want to give you a sample If it was a red day, let's see, where am I in my notes? On red days, you could not eat meat, fish, oil, wine, dairy, and eggs. There are a bunch of red days. On purple days, you could eat wine and oil. 
but you had to refrain from meat, fish, dairy, and eggs. On blue days, you could eat fish, oil, and wine. That was, that was good. But you had to refrain from meat, dairy, and eggs. On orange days, you could eat dairy, fish, eggs, oil, and wine, but you had to refrain from meat. And then on yellow days, there was no fast. You could eat whatever you wanted on yellow days. And I did not see many yellow days. I didn't see many of those. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on the Greek Orthodox here. But listen, you could stringently keep that calendar. Fast every day just like your priest tells you to. And yet, if there is not obedience to the Lord's commands following that fast, it's going to resemble some of those passages we read from Amos, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah. It is meaningless. Now, we Presbyterians, we're cold on the church calendar and we don't have fast days like that. But listen, it's possible for us to care about worship and doctrine and order to have the cup clean on the outside. To think that those external actions are what our God delights in. But where are our hearts? What are we doing on the inside? We need to remember that to obey is better than sacrifice. Then going back to the text in verse 23, we read that for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel was putting his finger on Saul's sin. It wasn't just disobedience. It wasn't just failure or misunderstanding. It was rebellion. God said to do this and he didn't do it. Right? If you don't do what God has said, you're rebelling against the God who said it. I mean, think of the Garden of Eden. Our our first parents didn't make weapons and gather an army to try to overthrow God. They rebelled by simply breaking one commandment to not eat from one particular tree. And Samuel says it is rebellion and it's just as bad as divination. You might as well go to a witch and try to figure out what God wants you to do. And spoiler, Saul's going to do that. He's going to do it. Well, what, what about presumption? Is this pride? Considering your own wisdom to be better than God's wisdom? Oh, we, we should kill all those animals. We could bring some back, use some, sacrifice some. We know better. We're just going to improve this command a little bit. I'm not going to kill the king. I'm going to bring him back, parade him around as a defeated foe, raise the morale of the people. Yeah, that's what this presumption is. Lord, I can improve your word. I can make it better. Samuel says that's as iniquity and idolatry. And then comes the condemnation at the end of verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. 
Now, over the last two weeks, I've ended, this is kind of hard to do when you preach the same passage three times in a row. I've ended by pointing you to the Lord Jesus and how he is the true king and how he delighted the Lord and how he performed perfect obedience. I mean, God did not accept the ministry of Saul, but he did accept the ministry of Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus prays to his father and says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He was right. He was not deceived. He accomplished everything that his father gave him to do. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that was his monument. By looking to the cross and by believing in his name, we are saved. Saul was rejected from being king because he rejected the word of the Lord. But Jesus Christ was highly exalted by God and raised up and given the name that is above every name because he obeyed. And dear saints, this is our hope. It is our trust. It is our boast every day for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. The perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus. But this is what I want to end with. What is required of you and me? It's to believe God's promises and to obey his commands. I mean, this is biblical faith. To believe God's promises and obey his commands. Well, John, what happens when we don't? What happens when we're deceived? What happens when we fall away? What happens when we focus more on the exterior worship than inner obedience? What do we do? I think we should probably remember the words written by the king who will follow Saul. A king named David. And the words he speaks after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. In Psalm 51, we read David's confession of sin. And he says, O Lord, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. That sounds familiar, right? But listen to what comes next. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said of the sinful man who was on his knees in the temple beating his chest, crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? He says that man went home justified. That man went home declared righteous because he wasn't trusting in himself. He was trusting in the righteousness of God that comes through faith. And so when you rebel, when you presume upon the Lord, when you fail to listen to his words and and follow them 100%, confess that sin. And remember that a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise.
I mean, going through that list of, from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, you, you see a lot of things the Lord despises. But I want you to leave this place remembering that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Humble yourselves. Believe his promises. And look to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, we can easily feel like hypocrites reading this text because Saul is one who does 99.9% of the job and fails in one area and loses his kingship. And Lord, how often do our percentages of obedience fall way, way lower than that? And and Lord, we remember that our only hope is in the Lord Jesus. Our only hope is in his perfect obedience. And so, Lord, would you give us a broken and, and contrite heart that we might humble ourselves before you and not make excuses like Saul did, like, oh, it was, it was the people, we had good intentions, please don't remove me from office. Lord, would, would we not care about any of that, but simply look to you and say, Lord, against you and against you alone have I sinned. For the sake of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, forgive me this sin. Lord, would you help us? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.